Today we close our, our series on Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah, who said it's, it's never too late for a new beginning. Look at your neighbor and tell him that. It's never too late for a new beginning. If you need a new beginning, today is your day. Never too late for that. God steps in in the midst of mess, and he shows us the way. He shows us what to do and how to do it. He gives us wisdom to know the decisions to make. And last week we looked at uh, Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 39 says, we will not neglect the house of our God. And they came to a point where they, they needed revival. And in order to have revival, we said last week, you, you've got to return to brokenheartedness. You've got to come to the point where you realize how far off you are. It's a good day when we lay our arguments down with God and we just say yes. That changes everything. That brings you into right relationship with God. In order to have revival, we've got to reflect on God's goodness, rejoice in, in how good God is, and look what the Lord has done. And we look back and we see his faithfulness, and we look forward and see he's still faithful. He's trustworthy, no matter what my circumstances look like. And also we recognize our sinfulness, and we repent of our sins. That's the beginning of new life, when we repent of our sins, and then we renew our obedience at times throughout our life. We rededicate our lives to God. We rededicate our lives to his church. And it brings us to Nehemiah chapter 11. And we've got three chapters to go through, so buckle up. We're going to only take about an hour and a half, okay? I'm joking. We'll get there. We're going to finish this up today. Nehemiah 11, 1, the leaders of the people were living in Jerusalem, the holy city. A tenth of the people from the other towns of Judah and Benjamin were chosen by sacred lots to live there too, while the rest stayed where they were. And the people commended everyone who volunteered to resettle in Jerusalem. Here's a list of the names of the provincial officials who came to live in Jerusalem. Most of the people, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants continued to live in their own homes in the various towns of Judah. But some of the people from Judah and Benjamin resettled in Jerusalem. From the tribe of Judah, there's a bunch of people. Verse 6 says, there's a bunch. There were 468 descendants of Perez who lived in Jerusalem, all outstanding men. From the tribe of Benjamin, all those guys. Verse 9, there's a bunch of them. Their chief officer was Joel, son of Zikri, who was assisted by Judah, son of Hashanua, second in command over the city. From the priests, all those guys, the son of Ahitub, the, the supervisor of the temple of God. Also, 822 of their associates, I'm glad they didn't list them all, who worked at the temple. Also, Adiah and those guys in verse 12, along with 242 of his associates who were heads of their families. Also, Amishai and 128 of his outstanding associates. Verse 15, from the Levites, Shemaiah, and they were in charge of the work outside the temple of God. And also Madaniah, son of Micah, son of Zebedee, the descendant of Asaph, who led in thanksgiving and prayer. Also back to Micaiah, assistant, and somebody, and then verse 19, from the gatekeepers, Akab, Talman, 172 of their associates who guarded the gates. 
The other priests, Levites, the rest of the Israelites lived wherever their family inheritance was located in any of the towns of Judah. As I read that about the, the family inheritance, I'm thinking, you know, some of us, we look at our lives and we go, I don't really have an inheritance. I don't have anything to pass on to my kids. I didn't come from a godly family. I don't, I don't have that kind of spiritual inheritance. I'm thankful for, for what happened in my grandfather in his life, which changed our entire family line. I'm thankful for my grandmother on my mother's side, Grandma Briney. She was a, a wild woman, nasty mouth. They said she could cuss out a sailor and make him blush. I didn't know her back then, but, but she, she always had a fiery spirit. I mean, I, I walked in one time. Uh, we had driven. I had driven my aunt to go live with her in California. I was in Wichita at the time, Wichita, Kansas. Drove all the way to L.A., okay? Walked into her apartment in Anaheim, and, and she was sitting in her chair, and Magic Johnson was playing. And she, she said, take your shoes off and don't, don't step on the rug. I'm like, Grandma, I haven't seen you in years. How you doing? She's like, get out of the way. Magic's playing. I'm like, great to see you too, Grandma. But, but God did something in her life, and she was a, a nasty woman who, when God got a hold of her, she got curious about the church in her little town in Illinois. And she would go and, and look inside the windows from the outside. She'd look in to see what was going on. And she finally got up enough courage. She went inside and said to the preacher, she said, you know what? I think you've got electricity running down in the front of your, your church. Everybody goes down. They, they start shaking and, and falling over. And <laughs> he said, well, there's no electricity, but you can come and check. And she did. She went inside. She started lift, you know, looking for any kind of electrical wires, nothing. And finally... It, it took a while, but she finally came inside, and she prayed a very simple prayer. She said, God, if that's really you, then shake me too. <laughs> you don't pray those kind of prayers unless you want to get what God has for you. And God just began to shake her, and, and she gave her life to the Lord. She became an evangelist, and, uh, and, and my grandfather didn't like that. He, he got upset, and he divorced her. And he was, he was messing around with some other women and stuff. But, but God never, she, she never had her faith in God shaken. And that was placed in my mother, okay? And my mom raised us kids because dad was he, was, he was a pastor and he was gone all the time. And uh, so I look at both of my family inheritances and I say, thank you, Jesus, that somebody passed something on to me that changed not just me, but the generation following me and the generation following my next generation. You say, well, I don't have that. Never, never did. My, my family's not like that. Okay, start one. You be the change. You started in your family. You pass something on to your kids, and they'll pass it on to their kids, and their kids will pass it on to their kids, and all of a sudden you've got generations and generations who have a godly inheritance. You don't want to just pass a million bucks on to your kids. You want to pass them something that can handle the million bucks you give them. You, you want them to have character. You want them to have godliness. You want them to have a heart of generosity. 
And while you're passing the million bucks, remember the church. <laughs> so start a godly inheritance, a family inheritance. Verse 21, the temple servants, however, those whose leaders were Zihah and Gishba and all lived in the hill of Bethel, city chief officer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzzah, and whose family served as singers at God's temple. Their daily responsibilities were carried out according to the terms of a royal command. Isn't it interesting that the singers had a royal command? They were charged by the king to sing. Pethahiah, son of Meshazabel, the descendant of Zerah, son of Judah, was the royal advisor in all matters of public administration. And, and we're looking at this and we're going, okay, what's going on here? Well, because of the lack of people populating Jerusalem at the time, it, it left the Israelites susceptible to attack. Numerically, they were at a disadvantage. They were outnumbered. And in spiritual warfare, you and I need to realize it's not in numbers. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God even said to Gideon, you got too many. You can't win this thing. You got too many warriors. He said, you need, you need to narrow it down some. And he did. And he went from 32,000 down to 300. And they won without even lifting a sword. So... God's not necessarily concerned about numbers. He wants the right people in the right place. Okay? So the kind of strategy that Nehemiah uses, there's a couple of principles here. Number one, occupy Jerusalem with God's people. People who have godly purpose. People with godly plans. People with godly provision. Okay? Not people who just take up space. Not just takers. Not parasites. Not receivers only. When you just receive, you, you die. If you just take in, you're going you're gonna to blow up and die. You got to give out. Everybody, anybody ever been constipated? Seriously. You can, you can get backed up to the point where you actually die. Kind of a bad illustration, sorry. It just, it's what popped in my head, okay? But it takes everyone doing their part. You notice as we read through that chapter, it took everyone in their place, everyone doing their part, the right people, people who are willing to work. Look at your neighbor and say, be willing to work. Let's go. Let's go. There are certain strategic areas that have to be held at all costs. They've got to have proven people in strategic areas supported by others who are serving happily in the will of God. And so Nehemiah places the right people in the right place. Billy Graham says, courage is contagious. When a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. And so you need to be the right person in the right place to bring that courage to your area of ministry, to your area of need. And you, you, you stand strong, you stand brave. We need godly leaders. Amen? In every, in every area, every strata, every, every situation, 
Mark, Mark Batterson in his book Primal, he says, we falsely view righteousness as doing nothing wrong. So we practice holiness by subtraction. Don't do this, don't do that, and you're okay. But the problem with this approach is this. You can do nothing wrong and still do nothing right. I mean, do you really think God's ultimate dream for us is to do nothing wrong? Is God's ultimate plan a weekly pilgrimage to the pew? Is God's highest aim the absence of sin? As a parent, I love when my kids make a difficult decision to not do something wrong, but the thing that brings me far more joy is seeing them pursue God-given passions, go after God-sized dreams. I want them to maximize their God-given potential for His purposes. And, and we need to occupy Occupy our place. Where, where are we? We need to occupy that place with, with great purpose. So what is your occupation? You need to occupy your place, occupy your purpose, occupy your passion, occupy your position. Do you occupy with a purpose? Or are you just putting in time? Is your boss glad that he hired a Christian because of your work ethic? I mean, even, even as you serve in the church, are you doing it with a purpose? Pete was telling his friend that he had just lost his job. He said, well, why did the foreman fire you? His friend said, well, you know, you know how foremen are. They're always standing around with their hands in their pockets watching everyone else work. He said, yeah, we all know that. He said, but why did he let you go? He said, well, jealousy. All the other workers thought I was the foreman. Ephesians chapter 4 says, however, he has given each one of us a special gift. Look at your neighbor and say, you're gifted. You are gifted. Given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That's why the scriptures say, when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. And this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. And then we'll no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. See, God's plan is he's placed leaders to pour into you so you can do the work. But I thought that's what we paid you for. No, my responsibility is to train you so you can rise up and be what God's designed you to be. 
and you build up the body of Christ. And as every part does its work, we all come into unity and the machine starts to flow in a beautiful way and things are happening because everyone's doing their job. Occupy. Where has God placed you? How has God blessed you? Occupy that space and do it well. Even the most obscure task in the service of the King of Kings is as important as the most public task. It may be unseen. It may be unrecognized. It may go unreported here on earth. But God sees. God keeps great records. Amen. So occupy with purpose, occupy with passion. Principle number two, they dedicated the wall and they dedicated themselves. Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 24. So this dedication was pretty expansive. I mean, it was pretty impressive. Verse 24 says, These were the family leaders of the Levites, Hashabiah, Shabash, Jeshub, and other associates who stood opposite them during the ceremonies of praise and thanksgiving, one section responding to the other as commanded by David, the man of God. It'd be like this side over here yelling at these people and praising God, and then these people yelling back and praising God. It's like, what? Pretty cool. And um, Meshulam, Talmud, Aqab were the gatekeepers in charge of the storerooms and the gates. These all served in the days of Jacob. And verse 27 says, For the dedication of the new wall of Jerusalem, the Levites throughout the land were asked to come to Jerusalem to assist in the ceremonies. They were to take part in the joyous occasion. The NIV says to celebrate joyfully. They were called in to take part in this joyous occasion with their songs of thanksgiving, with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Tophethites. They also came from Beth Gilgal and the rural areas near Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built their own settlements around Jerusalem. Imagine Jerusalem being surrounded by singers. So there was a sound at all times of singing and praise. Come on, that had to be cool. The priests and Levites first purified themselves. This is before Spotify, right? This is before iTunes. This is before having music on your phone. This is way before that. They didn't have radios, okay? They didn't have boom boxes. They didn't have nothing. They just had singers surrounding the city. Hey, we love you, Lord. Yay. And, and, and the sound of praise was all over the place. Shoo. The singers were brought together from the region around Jerusalem. Where am I at? Verse 30. The priests and Levites first purified themselves. Then they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. You've got to purify yourself before you, anything else can be pure that you touch. I led the leaders of Judah to the top of the wall and organized two large choirs to give thanks. One of the choirs proceeded southward along the top of the wall to the Dung Gate. Aren't you glad you didn't have to go to the Dung Gate that day? That's like living in, in Landenberg, Avondale. No, I'm serious. Have you driven through there at certain times of the day? I used to drive Allie to, to uh, Avergrove Charter School, 
And it was like driving into the dung gate. <laughs> it's like, whoa. It just hits you in the face, uh, in the nose. Sorry. Verse 32. Hoshiah and the half of the leaders of Judah followed them along with Azariah, Ezra, and Meshulam. And then, verse 35, then came some priests who played trumpets. Cool. I play trumpet. Including Zechariah, son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of that. And Zechariah's colleagues were Shemaiah's relative. And the ver- last part of verse 36 says, they used the musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra and the scribe led this procession. It was a procession. And music's happening and everybody's playing the right instruments. At the fountain gate, they went straight up the steps on the ascent of the city wall toward the city of David. They passed the house of David and they proceeded to the water gate on the east. The second choir, giving thanks, went northward around the other way to meet them. And I followed them together with the other half of the people along the top of the wall, past the Tower of the Ovens through the broad wall, then past the Ephraim Gate and to the Old City Gate, past the Fish Gate, the Tower of Hananel, and on to the Tower of the Hundred. Then we continued on to the Sheep Gate and stopped at the Guard Gate. Verse 40, the two choirs that were giving thanks then proceeded to the Temple of God where they took their places. So did I. Together with the group of leaders who were with me, we went together with the trumpet-playing priests. Eliakim, Messiah, and the singers, Messiah, and they played and sang loudly under the direction of Jezrahiah, the choir director. Somebody say they played and sang loudly. We do loud really well here. Some of us, others of us need to learn how to do loud in our praise. In fact, it says, verse 40, 43, many sacrifices were offered on that joyous day. For God had given the people cause for great joy. I'm going to just tell you, you, you've got a cause for great joy. If your sins have been forgiven, if you've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, you're, you've been set free, your name's written down in the Lamb's book of life, you have cause for great joy. Hallelujah. And the women and children also participated in the celebration. And the joy of the people of Jerusalem could be heard far away. I, I, I would love it when the, the city comes to us and says, look, your praise and worship is just way too loud. We can hear the voices of the people shouting and praising God. It could be heard far away. And on that day, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the offerings, the first part of the harvest and the tithes. They were responsible to collect from the fields outside the towns and portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. For all the people of Judah took joy in the priests and Levites and their work. Well, that's a different day, isn't it? (laughs) It'd be like everybody being happy about everybody that's leading here. Wow. Wouldn't that be amazing? Just a thought. It'd be pretty cool if everybody took joy. Okay. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification as commanded by David and his son Solomon, and so did the singers and the gatekeepers. The custom of having choir directors to lead the choirs and hymns of praise and thanksgiving to God began long ago in the days of David and Asaph. So now in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel brought a daily supply of food for the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Levites. The Levites, in turn, gave a portion of what they received to the priests, the descendants of Aaron. I mean, this was a very joyful time. This... There was joy, there was victory, there was dancing, there was noise, rejoicing, excitement, there was anticipation, kind of a sense of finality. Things have finally come to to be. 
I mean, it had taken a lot of, of time, a lot of effort, a lot of struggle. But the scripture says, those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seeds, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It's, it's doing the right thing in the toughest of times. And I've told you this many times, but I used to think that that scripture, those who sow in tears shall reap with joy. I thought you just had to cry a lot. And I wasn't really a crier, so I'm like, yeah, well, I, I ain't getting none of that. But the, the reality was planting season was in the cold winter months in Palestine. And so the farmer would go out with his bag of seed and that cold north wind was hitting his eyes. Now, you don't remember that right now. There's coming a day soon, okay? Cold north wind's coming back. And when it hits your eyes, the tears start to flow. Not because you want to cry, but because you have to cry. It just forces the tears out of your eyes. And so he's doing the right thing in the toughest of times. Because if you'll sow in tears, if you'll plant when it's difficult, you will reap the harvest in due time. That, that's God's promise. And so you do the right thing, even though it, it causes tears to flow. Even though the, the, the elements are harsh and they're pushing against you. You know, if I don't plant now, I'm not getting anything then. And so I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to do what God's asked me to do. I'm going to continue to plant. I'm not going to give up because my harvest is coming. So they did that. And they won. They did the hard things in the tough times. And I, I love this, this passage because the children of God, the people of God, us Christians, should be the singingest people in the world. We've got a song. We've got a reason to sing. I mean, there, there's a song of joy that rises up within us. But we have, we, we've been set free. Psalm 126 says, When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for you. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Amen. See, something happens inside of you when God sets you free. Songs begin to flow. Verse 30 says they purified themselves. I mean, it was more than skin deep purification. If you want to be used by God, you've got to be purified. And it didn't just touch their hearts, it, it touched their pockets. They started to, to tithe again. They started to give again. I was reading a story the, the treasurer of a congregation resigned, and the church asked another one to take his position, a man who had managed the local grain elevator. And he agreed under two conditions. He said, number one, that no one, no report from the treasurer for one whole year be given. And number two, that no one asked him any questions during this one-year period. Well, the church gulped, but they finally agreed since he was a trusted man in the community and well-known because most of them did business with him as a manager of the local elevator. At the end of the year, he gave his report. The indebtedness of $250,000 on the church was paid. The minister's salary was increased. Missions giving had doubled. There were no outstanding bills. There was a cash balance of $12,000. Well, immediately the shocked congregation said, how? Quietly, he answered, most of you bring your grain to my elevator. 
as you did business with me, I simply withheld 10% on your behalf, gave it to the church in your name. You never missed it. I mean, really, it's amazing what could happen if everyone got on board and just did what God asked them to do. They purified themselves. They obeyed God with, with tithe and offerings. They also rejoiced over their spiritual leaders. Lord, give us this kind of spirit again. Amen. There are three places that should feel the impact of your dedication. Number one, your home. Your home should be sweeter, lovelier, more joyful, more than just a restaurant or a hotel where people come to eat and sleep, okay? It should be a refuge filled with God's presence, the right environment. Some people roll out the welcome mat for the devil by creating an environment that he's comfortable in. I don't, I don't want the devil comfortable in my house. I want to make it so uncomfortable that he can't even come and visit because the presence of God is there. Create the right atmosphere in your home. Your dedication to the Lord should change your home. If your home hasn't changed since you've given your life to Jesus, it's time to take, take account and say, okay, what's going on here? What do I need to do? Number two, your business should feel the impact of your dedication to the Lord. If you work for somebody else, you don't have an eye on the clock. Always just, how, how little can I do? Not pleasing men, but pleasing God, because you're working for the Lord. That's the reality. That's what Scripture tells us. And number three, your church should feel the impact of your dedication to the Lord. As you're regular in prayer, regular in your worship, your finances are honoring God. You're using your gifts and your abilities to advance the kingdom of God. You're inviting friends to, to experience what you've experienced. Every area of your life should feel the impact of your dedication to the Lord. So after completing the wall, Nehemiah returned to the king's court. And 12 years later, he returns to Jerusalem to find out what's happening. Chapter 13 tells us of a man, Nehemiah, who loyally served God to the bitter end. He knew God's purpose for his people. He knew God's desire to reach the multitude through the few. God's not concerned with crowds, but with channels. Clean, pure channels through which he can flow. And the people had met in a great convention to worship God and made a covenant with the Lord. And it seemed like they would move forward in perpetual blessing. But the sins that brought them down as a nation before started to plague them again. It brings us to Nehemiah chapter 13. On that same day as the book of Moses was being read to the people, the passage was found that said no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be permitted to enter the assembly of God. They had not provided the Israelites with food and water in the wilderness. Instead, they hired Balaam to curse them. Though our God turned the curse into a blessing, <laughs> which he always does, he can do that. The curse can't land in, in, in your hair if you don't allow it to. When this passage of the law was read, all those of foreign descent were immediately excluded from the assembly. Before this had happened, Eliashib the priest, who had been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God 
who was also a relative of Tobiah, had converted a large storage room and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. The room had previously been used for storing the grain offerings, the frankincense, various articles for the temple, and the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil, which were prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, as well as the offerings for the priests. I was not in Jerusalem at that time, for I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign, though I later asked his permission to return. And what we notice here is when there's a lack of, of strong godly leadership, people tend to go back to their old ways. They tend to go back to what, what really is in their hearts. Because I know when, when you get away from your mom and dad, you start to act different as a kid. Nobody's here to watch me. That's why Daniel is so impressive to me. Taken away as a captive. Mom and dad's not around. But still he says, I will not be defiled by this stuff. I love God too much. He was a teenager. He's not looking for a way to fall back, to go back to what he used to be. I mean, people go back. It's like when Moses went to the mountain. You got Aaron and the people saying, well, we don't know where Moses is. What do we do? And he's like, okay, bring me, bring me all your earrings. Bring me all your gold. And he formed a calf, a golden calf. And you all know the story. And when Moses came back, Aaron's like, I don't know what happened. I threw in the gold and out came this calf. And people go back. Just look at your neighbor and say, don't go back. Please, don't go back. Let God's spirit live in you. And, and let him lead and guide you to where you need to be. So they disobeyed the Lord. They became lax in caring for God's house. When that happens, all kinds of stuff comes in. I mean... It says in verse 7, when I arrived back in Jerusalem, I learned about Eliashib's evil deed in providing Tobiah with a room in the courtyards of the temple of God. And here's Tobiah, the enemy of, of God's people, who fought the reconstruction of the wall all the way. And, and Nehemiah said he would never have a part or a lot in Jerusalem. And here he is living in the temple of God because somebody let him in. Somebody opened the door and said, hey, nobody's bringing tithe anymore, so take that room. I mean, when, when we get lax with the things of God, we allow all kinds of stuff in. Yes. Nehemiah says in verse 8, I became very upset and threw all of Tobiah's belongings out of the room. Get out of here. He took his stuff and said, get it out of this place. Some of you need to clean house. There needs to be a house cleaning. Then I demanded that the rooms be purified. And I brought back the articles for God's temple, the grain offerings and the frankincense. Where'd they fail? Well, they failed in their separation. When we tolerate evil, it's one of the most damaging things. Permissiveness is the beginning of the end. And here we find Tobiah being let in And I wonder what Tobiah have you allowed 
to enter your temple. What enemy of God are you given free access to your temple? Because now you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of God. God's Spirit dwells in you. Don't give free access to the enemy, to the temple of God. If God says no, then it's no. Just say no. See, Jesus Christ wants to dwell and have full access to every area of our lives. Don't give the enemy access. Throw out his things. Cleanse the temple. Return to the things of God to the right place. If we mean business with God, we've got to examine every part of our lives for the furniture of the enemy that clutters our lives. One thing Andy Stanley has said, and I believe, is this is a path and it leads somewhere. So there's nothing wrong with what? Well, it's a path. There may nothing be wrong with that, but it's a pathway and it leads somewhere. And you've got to see where the eventual end of that pathway is. Okay? Some things you're doing, some things you're, you're allowing, it's not that bad yet. But it's a pathway. And it leads somewhere. And the end is destruction. The end is trouble. Realize what, where that path leads and deal with it. They also failed in their service. Verse 10, I also discovered that the Levites had not been given their prescribed portions of food. So they and the singers were, who were to conduct the worship services had all returned to work in their fields. I immediately confronted the leaders and demanded, why has the temple of God been neglected? Then I called all the Levites back again and restored them to their proper duties. And once more, all the people of Judah began bringing their tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the temple storerooms. They'd quit tithing. So, so the Levites went, had to go back and find secular employment. When we don't follow the Lord, God's ways, we, we really get things out of whack. Things get messed up. And he says, I, I assigned supervisors for the storeroom, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the, the scribe, and Padiah, one of the Levites. I appointed Hannah and son of the Zakor, the grandson of Mananiah, as their assistant. These men had an excellent reputation. And it was their job to make honest distributions to their fellow Levites. Remember this good deed, O oh my God, and do not forget all that I have faithfully done for the temple of my God and his services. And in those days, I saw men of Judah treading out their wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. So I rebuked them for selling their produce on that day. Some men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise. They were selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem at that. So I confronted the nobles of Judah. Why are you profaning the Sabbath in this evil way, I asked. Wasn't it just this sort of thing that your ancestors did that caused our God to bring all this trouble upon us in our city? Now you're bringing even more wrath upon Israel by permitting the Sabbath to be desecrated in this way. Then I commanded that the gates of Jerusalem should be shut as darkness fell every Friday evening, not to be opened until the Sabbath ended. I sent some of my own servants to guard the gates so that no merchandise could be brought in on the Sabbath day. The merchants and the tradesmen with a variety of wares camped outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I spoke sharply to them and said, what are you doing out here camping around the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. 
Another translation says, I will lay hands on you. And that was the last time they came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and to guard the gates in order to preserve the holiness of the Sabbath. There's a key here. Purify yourself and guard your gates. Purify yourself, guard your gates. Don't let in the stuff that is going to defile. Remember this good deed also, O my God. Have compassion on me according to your great and unfailing love. And here we see the Lord's day had just become like any other day. And, and now, you know, it used to be the Sabbath and then and, and things have just gone to the point where it's just, it's the weekend. No big deal. I mean, it's the weekend. And, and we don't honor God. We don't give ourselves to him completely. The house of God gets neglected. And it shows where our priorities are. Now, I'm not trying to down anybody. I'm just saying, look, God's house, his ways need to be honored. About the same time, I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Furthermore, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or of some other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. So I confronted them and called down curses on them. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. I mean, sometimes I'd like to pull a Nehemiah. <laughs> Sorry. I'd love to beat some of you and pull your hair out and say, what are you thinking? Seriously? I mean, come on. Do you realize the damage you're doing to you, yourself, your kids, your family, by neglecting the things of God? You realize what you're doing by not giving your first fruits and tithing. You're causing damage to your family. You're causing damage to your bottom line. My uncle was an ungodly man, but he was raised in my grandma Briney's house. And he knew that tithing was right. He, he didn't love God. He died at a very young age. But before he died, he was a multimillionaire. And here's what his statement was. He said, tithing just makes good business sense. So you want your business blessed, you tithe. And God blessed him because he honored God with his finances. I mean, I'd love to say, what are you thinking? I'm not going to pull your hair out, but I'd like to sometimes. And, and just say, what are you thinking by allowing your children to learn the language of the world around them and not understand or learn the language of praise? I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, some of the kids couldn't even speak the language of Judah, the language of praise. But they knew every other song on the radio. They knew all the curse words because that, that's all they heard. It's what they were around. When we treat the things of God as commonplace, 
We mess things up. Our attitude towards the Lord's day, eh, well, if we can make it, we make it, you know. And I tell you, it's a big deal. And Nehemiah got upset. He's like, guys, you've gotten so far off, you're going backwards instead of forward. Come on, get back together. Let's go. He said in verse 26, wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon of Israel into sin? I demanded. There was no king from any nation who could compare to him, and God loved him made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by his foreign wives. How could you even think of committing this sinful deed and acting unfaithfully toward God by marrying foreign women? He's like, dude, check out Solomon. Solomon was wise, and yet he didn't obey God in this area, and it brought him down. One of the sons of Joida, son of Eliashib, the high priest, and married daughter of Sanballat, the Horonite. So I banished him from my presence. NIV says, I drove him away from me. There's some people you need to drive away from you. You got to get them out of your life. They're not causing you any good. He says in verse 29, remember them, oh my God, for they've defiled the priesthood, the solemn vows of the priests and the Levites. Verse 30. So I purged out everything foreign, and I assigned tasks to the priests and Levites, making certain that each knew his work. I also made sure that the supply of wood for the altar and the first portions of the harvest were brought at the proper times. Remember this in my favor, O oh my God. They failed in their sanctification. They allowed sin to get into their homes and their families. Even the daughter of Samballot had married one of the priests. They lost the language of praise. They lost the language of Judah, the language of God. So Nehemiah rebuked them harshly. He made them take an oath. And just like them, we need to learn from history. We need to learn from Solomon. Hello? Nehemiah purified them of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task, each to his own job, each to his own work. I'll just say this. When we realize what we're called to do and we begin to do what God's asked us to do, things begin to fall into place. You don't get distracted by other things. You know why you're here. You know what God has placed you here for. And so you do what God's asked you to do. And you stay in your lane. And you keep being faithful. Because every one of us wants to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's what we want to hear. When that day comes and we stand before God Almighty, our creator, the one who loved us enough, to send his son Jesus Christ to die in our place, to forgive us of our sins, to set us free from sin, and to give us life everlasting. That's the God we serve. And that's the God who I want to hear say, good job, well done. You were faithful in what I gave you to do. You did what I called you to do. 
Well done, good and faithful servant. Come on in. We're going to have a party. And I know you want the same thing. And it's never too late for a new beginning. You say, I haven't lived like that. I haven't, I haven't done that. Well, it's never too late. Today's your starting point. Today's the day to start your family inheritance. Okay? Today's the day to start a spiritual legacy in your home to where everybody goes, wow, I wish I was a part of that family. You may not have it behind you. You can start it now. It's going to be ahead of you.